0: have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me this evening to 1st John chapter 5. An appeal to faith. After what became six weeks in a mini-series on what it looks like to love the brethren, today we find ourselves back in 1st John proper, stepping into the final chapter of this very important New Testament book. And today is going to be, as it were, the definitive passage in the series for the mindset and motivation of the Christian life. Throughout the series, we have spoken of loving God and loving one another. We have considered the dangers posed by false teaching to the simplicity and the clarity of the Word of God. And we have established our confidence that John is not litigating the question of who is saved in 1 John, but rather the question of what being saved is supposed to look like. That if we are those who are in Christ, then we ought to be those who walk in Christ. And only as we walk in Christ are we actually realizing the fullest power of God as those who are in Christ the power over sin, the power to reflect Christ properly to the lost world, the power to live in purposeful joy. And today we talk not uh, about the concept, the principle, or even necessarily the results. But we're going to be getting to the motivation, the mindset that God desires us to have, which compels us unto this kind of purposeful death to self and yieldedness to Christ. And we begin in verses 1 and 2 with what really amounts to a summary of the essence of the whole of the exhortations found in the first epistle of John. So John writes here in verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 5, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and keep his commandments. Okay, let's walk through a number of concepts here. Concept number one, the man who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. As we think through what John will be saying in these first four verses, uh, he begins with the foundation. He begins in this broad summary of what he's been talking about in 1 John with the essence of salvation itself. The simple gospel that is found throughout the New Testament. And we're going to talk about that simple gospel tonight because I want to lay that foundation of the simple gospel again in order that we can build upon it the thoughts that John is then himself going to build upon it. John chapter one verse twelve says, "But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Who is given the power to become the sons of God? It is them that believe on His name. Whosoever believeth on Jesus is uh, that excuse me, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ." is born of God. That's what we see in 1 John 5, verse 1. That's what we see in John chapter 1, verse 12. We're all familiar with John three sixteen, that blessed verse that perhaps encapsulates the gospel in a way no other verse does in the Scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Who will not perish, but have everlasting life? Whosoever believeth in him, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Paul wrote in Second Corinthians 11 about his concerns for the church of Corinth. And in that letter uh, regarding his concerns, in verse 3, he expressed a particular concern, a particular fear. And that fear in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 4, For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might... Well, bear with him. Now, this is very reminiscent of what we have read throughout the Epistle of First John. John warned in chapter two about those who were teaching that they should reject that, that, that these that these readers should reject other believers, which is why John has spent so much time speaking about this idea of not hating the brethren. He warned in chapter 2 about not loving the world. Implicitly, we might understand that these false teachers were not just separating these people from their brethren, but they were also compelling these brethren, these, these readers, to in, indulge a love for the world. And then finally, John spent time correcting this reality that Jesus is in fact come in the flesh. Implicitly, we might assume that these false teachers were also teaching that Jesus did not come. In the flesh. And to this end, in chapter 4, we saw John exhort the reader to try every spirit whether that spirit be of God, knowing that many false prophets are gone out into the world. And this is the same concern that Paul reflected to the church of Corinth here in 2 Corinthians 11 that they might, if they were not careful, be drawn away from the simplicity of the gospel by those who were preaching another Jesus or that had another spirit about them. But what Paul desired is that they would not be thus corrupted. Rather, they would cling to the simplicity and rest in that simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that we saw in John 1:12, that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. The simplicity of what we saw in John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the simplicity that we see in 1 John 5, verse 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And indeed, this gospel is very simple, Christian. You are... Like everyone else in this world, a sinner. You have proven that you are a sinner by the things which you have done. You have lied. You have coveted. You have lashed out in anger. You have lusted after that which is not your own. You have been selfish. You have been greedy. Thus, you are a sinner. It has been proven in your actions. Now, these things that you have done are not the problems themselves. These are symptoms of the problem, like a fever when your body is fighting a virus or when your body is fighting an infection. The sins that you commit are not the problem themselves. They are the symptoms that you have a problem, which is much deeper inside of you. And like with a fever where you can take a medication and that medication can uh, block some receptors in your brain and it will lower the temperature that you have for a time. But it will not actually fix the virus. It will not actually fix the infection itself. Maybe you have been very good at masking your sin over the years. Maybe, like that fever, you've been taking a lot of spiritual and emotional Tylenol. And you have this anger and you have these lies and you have this lust and you have this selfishness and you have this coveting. And it's all there in your heart, but you've been able to just discipline yourself to mask those symptoms pretty well. Your parents, your friends, your pastor, whoever it might be, they're, they're not really privy because you've done a good job of disciplining yourself. You've done a good job of living in that discipline, But even if your sin never leaves your heart, it's still in your heart, isn't it? Even if that anger that I feel toward that person never leaves my heart, never becomes wrath, never actually becomes a lashing out, a verbal or a physical lashing out at a person. I just keep it down and I stew on it and I dwell on it myself. It's still in there, isn't it? I'm still stewing on it. I'm still dwelling on it. Even if that covetousness never gives way to me buying or taking or stealing or, 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 or otherwise procuring that thing that I want, that I shouldn't want or, 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 or that, that I can't have because it belongs to someone else. Even if it never gives way to actually taking or, or, or having that thing, yet in my heart is still that longing, that desire for that which is not mine. Just like a person isn't sick because he has a fever, but rather he has the fever because he is sick. The fever being the symptom, not the problem. Getting rid of the fever is only treating a symptom, not curing the problem. It is the exact same way with you and I. We are not sinners because we do sinful things, we do sinful things because we are sinners because our heart is separated from God, because we are predisposed unto sin by the very fabric of our humanity. And the sins you commit are the symptoms of a much deeper problem rooted in the absolute depths of your heart. You are a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you have been separated from God. Because God is holy, Holy meaning that by God's very nature, he is set apart from sin. A holy God can no more have fellowship with sin than I can grow wings and fly off into the sunset. It is not within my nature to fly off into the sunset because I, by my very nature, do not have wings and cannot fly. It is not in God's nature to have fellowship with sinners. He is holy. That is what it means that he is holy. Therefore, it is outside of his nature and it is something that God cannot do. Pastor, you're saying there are things God cannot do. Absolutely, there are things God cannot do. God cannot have fellowship, communion with sin. He is holy. It is 100% contrary to the very nature of God himself to commune with sin. And that means you and I have a real problem. It is a fundamental problem that God's nature is that he is separated from sin and my nature is that I am a sinner. God, by nature, separated from sin. Me, by nature, a sinner. That is quite a great gulf between me and God. And that means it's impossible For me to be in fellowship with God. And the reason why this is a real problem is because we're mortal beings with immortal spirits, which means this body is going to fail and it is going to go into the grave, but I'm not going to go into the grave with it. My spirit will live on and it must live somewhere. There's coming a day when our bodies are going to die, our spirits will live on, and on that day, our spirit must have a destination. Now, by God's design, the human spirit is supposed to return unto the creator that made him. But if our spirits are sinful, then it is impossible that they return unto the creator that made them because our creator is holy, fundamentally incapable of communing, having fellowship with, receiving our sinfulness. To this end, God created another eternal abode, not initially meant for us, initially meant for the devil and his angels. Fitted for those spirits which were sinful and unable to abide with their creator, and this eternal abode is called the lake of fire. It is a place of eternal conscious torment where the spirits of those separated from God will spend eternity. So that we have an even bigger problem. If I die in my sin, the sin that, is by, that, that, that exists in me by my very nature, I die separated from my Creator forever. And thus I spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now, so far, it's all bad news. But as I share this, we're sharing what's called the gospel. And that word means good news. So fortunately, the bad news exists to lay the foundation for us to hear the good news. So let's get to the good news. We read the good news in that verse that we already read, John three sixteen, that though you and I are sinners and God is holy and we are naturally separated from God and God can't just overlook your sin or else he would no longer be holy and so no longer be God and then there would be A complete collapse of the whole system. God loves you so much that he was not willing to simply condemn your sinful soul to this separation without making a way for you to be reconciled to him in fellowship. Now, I certainly can't do that on my own. And neither can you, because I've already sinned. I'm already guilty. I'm already separated from God. And even if hypothetically I stopped sinning today, even if today I stopped showing the manifestations of my sinful heart, even if today I started taking that spiritual Tylenol every 12 hours for the rest of my life, disciplining myself into no longer manifesting the nature of my sin, it would not do anything to actually cure the infection that is underneath the infection would still be there, I would simply be masking the symptoms. The symptoms of a disease of which I have no power in and of myself to cure, regardless of the extent to which I mask those symptoms. But because God loves me, because God loves you, God made a plan by which he would pay for the debt of your sin and thus create the means by which to make you holy as he is holy. And this plan was that he would send the second person of the Godhead to become a man called Jesus, born some 2,000 years ago of a virgin named Mary and her husband Joseph. Jesus was 100% a man and that he was born of a human woman. But he was also 100% God in that he was conceived not of a human man, but of the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Godhead. And Jesus lived some 33 years upon this earth in perfect fellowship with God. Never once having stepped out of fellowship with God, not bearing the same sin nature we bear. For indeed, he was not born in Adam. He was born of a virgin. He had no human father. He did not carry Adam's sin. And for those 33 years, he was tempted and he was tried in all points like as we. And yet without sin, the scriptures tell us. And so never separated from God. Making him the perfect man. Now a sinful man cannot pay for the sins of another sinful man any more than a man in crippling debt can pay off the debt of another man in crippling debt. I can't pay off the sin of another if I'm in crippling debt and he's in crippling debt because I have my own debt to pay for. He can't pay off my debt. He has his own debt to pay for. No man can pay for the sin of another man, much less his own sin, because it is a debt we simply cannot pay. But a perfect man has no debt. And so he could justly pay off the debt of another. And the Bible says this is exactly what Jesus chose to do. In obedience to the Father, he gave up his life to pay for your sin. He shed his blood on the cross. And when he did so, the Bible says that God the Father took all of your sin and all of my sin. And he punished Jesus for that sin. And because Jesus had no sin of his own, this payment, while certainly unfair to Jesus, was sufficient to pay for your sin and to satisfy God's justice so that God could both be just and holy and also justify the sinner because a perfect man paid for that sin. I don't have to pay for it because Jesus paid for it. So that Jesus, according to 1 John 2, 2, was the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the entire world. World, But Jesus, of course, didn't stay dead. The scriptures tell us that Jesus rose again from the dead. See, if Jesus had stayed dead, sure, he might have purchased our forgiveness and our salvation, but how could he offer us eternal life? How can a dead man give any other man eternal life? A dead man cannot give another what he does not have himself. But the Bible tells us that three days after Jesus gave his life to purchase our forgiveness, he then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, so that everyone now has the chance to be reconciled to God. You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. You mean everyone is reconciled to God? I mean, if Jesus paid for the debt of every man, woman, and child who's ever lived, if he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the entire world, well, then everyone is reconciled to God, right? Everyone goes to heaven, right? Well, no, that's not what the Bible tells us. See, when Jesus paid for our sin on the cross, Jesus purchased our forgiveness in that he purchased our sin debt. But in that he purchased our sin debt, it's very similar to what we might think of with a debt collector today, where a man might purchase from a creditor the debt of someone else so that now the original debtor no longer owes a debt to the first man, but he owes a debt to the man who purchased his debt. And the scriptures tell us that when Jesus purchased our debt on the cross with his own blood, the father judicially transferred all authority for our sin debt from himself to his son. So that in a manner of speaking, Jesus now has the right to decide how it is he disposes of our sin debt. And what God has always wanted from mankind Is not necessarily our obedience per se. Our obedience is important. But what God has always wanted from mankind has been our love. God wants a relationship of love between creator and created. Throughout all of the rest of the created universe, God has obedience. God has obedience from the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the rocks, the trees. All of those things bow to the will of God's commands. But humanity he made different. He gave humanity a free will. He made humanity in his image and after his likeness for a different purpose. And that purpose was that we might not just obey him, but that we might love him. We can certainly obey God without loving him. Millions of people every day obey God without loving him. But what humanity cannot do is love him without obeying him. So that if we love God, God knows that the obedience part will follow out of that naturally. To this end, when the father transferred that debt to the son... When the Son purchased our sin debt with His own blood on the cross, Jesus set a new standard for heaven. Righteousness had already been paid for. The debt with the Father had been forgiven. The wrath of God, the Father, against sin was satisfied. There is now a new standard for heaven. And that standard is not your own righteousness as it was with the Father. But that standard is that you would, with all of your heart, accept Christ's sacrifice for your sins on the cross to set aside anything and everything that you might be trusting in to earn, to work, or otherwise be worthy of a relationship with God and rather to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone on the cross, that he died on the cross to save you from your sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day. And when we set aside anything and everything that we're trusting in and we trust in Christ alone, the word that we find in the scriptures for this is the word believe. And the simplicity of the gospel tells us that whosoever believeth on Christ will be covered in the righteousness which Jesus Christ purchased on the cross, that that righteousness which he purchased will be placed upon those who believe on him, on his finished work. And that man, that woman, that child will be declared righteous. Not that we have earned righteousness, not that we are worthy of righteousness, but because Jesus... He paid the debt. The Father, the great judge of all the earth who will do right, looks on me and my sin, and he sees instead the finished work of Jesus Christ, which I have received for myself by grace, through faith, by believing on him. And in doing so, the great judge looks down at me and he says, "'You may not be innocent, but I declare you not guilty.'" And as one who is not guilty, I am now, by judicial declaration, holy. And that means that I, as a holy believer in Jesus Christ, can now have fellowship with a holy God. And I am reconciled to him qualified to have fellowship with that holy God and able thus to spend eternity with God in heaven rather than eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. So that the simplicity of Christ compels us to understand that there is nothing any man can do to earn his way, work his way, or be worthy of God except through the work of Jesus Christ who has already done that work on the cross. Jesus purchased my worth for me and any man who will accept that simple truth and receive it by faith is in the words of 1st John chapter 5 verse 1 born of God born again made a new creation in Christ passed from death to life given everlasting life. And that's the gospel. That's the foundation of what John is talking about this evening that is going to be able to propel us into the next line of thinking. And of course, if you're here this evening and you have never done that for yourself, you've never come to that place where you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, let's make tonight the night. But this is the baseline of John's argument. After all of the teaching about righteousness and loving the brethren, John comes back to this baseline reminding us once again... That John throughout the epistle has not been teaching us about how to be saved or how to stay saved, but rather about how to live as those who are saved. Okay, so everyone who believes is born of God. But the Bible also makes it clear, as 1 John has said from the very beginning, that just because we have accepted this gift and been born of God does not mean that we will, without fail, walk in the Spirit. We might be living in the Spirit, but that doesn't mean we're walking in the Spirit That eternal life is not just something that you and I will step into one day when these bodies fail and we enter into that eternity, but eternal life is something that I can live in today. Do you remember? It was a long time ago that I preached that message. That eternal life is something you can live in today. I think this is message 25 or 26, so probably a good half a year ago that I preached that one. But it's, it's just as true today as it was six months ago. And we can live in it today as we walk in the Spirit, as we abide in Christ, as we live in obedience. So that, as we said way back in chapter 1, fullness of joy comes from God as we walk in fellowship with God and man. So then if I don't have joy, I know that there's something wrong in my fellowship either with God or with man. Fellowship with God and man comes from walking in the light so that if I'm not walking in the light, then I'm not in fellowship and I certainly won't have fullness of joy. And that's what John says here, that the man who is actively loving the God that begat him is the man who is walking in the light, and so walking in fellowship with God and man. So that if I'm loving the one who begat me, that's God. God's the one who begat me. God's the one who who, who brought me into this place where I am called a son of God, where I am begotten of God. Then it is only natural that I'm going to love the others who are begotten of him as well. Those are other believers. That if you're begotten of God and I'm begotten of God, then by nature of you walking with God and me walking with God, we are going to love one another. And then John also gives the inverse of that idea, telling us that we know that we are loving the children of God when we're loving God and keeping his commandments. Because I can't be loving God and keeping his commandments without loving the children of God. The commandments of God, when we lovingly obey them, will invariably direct our hearts into a love for the brethren because I'm not loving and obeying God if I'm not also loving the brethren. So there's this symbiotic relationship between these virtues in our lives where it's natural for me to love God as one who is born of God. And it's natural that when I'm born of God, I will love others who are born of God and I will know that I love others who are born of God when I'm loving God and keeping his commandments because God's commandment is that I love the brethren. And we've spent six weeks exploring what that looks like so we're not going to get back into that this evening. But now with all of that in hand, that's kind of the foundation. That's, we've, just, we've just poured the foundation. We come to the next level. The motivation, the mindset. Verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. The first thing that we find is kind of the final dot that I, I jumped the gun and connected already. That the reason I can have the utmost confidence that I do in fact love the brethren is because I am actively living in the love of God. And I know that if I'm actively living in the love of God, and I know that I am actively living in the love of God, because I am keeping His commandments. And if I'm not keeping God's commandments, well, simply put, I'm not walking in the love of God. And this doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It means that I'm not walking in the spirit. I'm not abiding in Christ. I'm not actively engaged in loving God, in walking in the light. I am not walking in the love that has been purchased for me on the cross. And you might say, okay, pastor, I get it. Loving God is keeping his commandments. Keeping his commandments is loving the brethren. Therefore, loving God is loving the brethren. We spent six weeks learning of the misery that is setting myself aside to bless and to help and to comfort and to support everyone else. The misery of setting myself aside so that I can invest in others with only the possibility of some measure of consolation in the fact that maybe, just maybe, one of those people that I'm pouring myself into might just pour a little bit back into me. Yeah, I get it, Pastor. Long story short, I live in resigned misery for the rest of my life to please the God who saved me. Give up my dreams, give up my desires reject my impulses, make everyone else happy, and hope that heaven makes up for it, right? And while I'd like to hope that that isn't the way that anyone under the sound of my voice is thinking about the Christian life, it's entirely possible that that's how many under the sound of my voice are thinking about the Christian life after six weeks of learning how to love the brethren, Setting myself aside, pouring myself into others, dying to self, living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable service, uh, uh, investing in others, mourning with others, rejoicing with others, uh, setting my my liberties aside for others. Ugh, right? See, it's not an uncommon perspective to see obedience to the commands of Christ as some sort of loss in my life. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? You're going to hear a little bit of a reiteration of that this evening. That somehow when I'm following Christ and I'm doing things his way and I'm yielding myself on the altar of the Lord's will for me and the blessing of others, I'm giving something up. I'm yielding happiness maybe to purchase God's favor. But immediately as I say that, if you've been listening, you'll recognize that this cannot be. There's something terribly wrong here, see, because there is no such thing in the Christian life as purchasing God's favor. There cannot be such thing in the Christian life as purchasing God's favor. And the reason why that is is simply not possible is because it's already been purchased for me. Jesus already purchased God's favor on the cross. I already have God's favor. The minute that I stepped into that place of being born again, the minute that I became a son of the living God, I was holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. I already have all the favor I can possibly have because when the father looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. And Jesus certainly has all the favor that the father can possibly give. And so that's not it. I'm not living to purchase God's favor. I'm simply choosing to live in the power of that favor or not. And this is where the next phrase comes in. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Here it is. And his commandments are not grievous. Living in subjugation to God is to keep God's commandments, whether they're grievous or not with resentment, with distrust, with resignation to God's authority. Well, I don't like it, but he's the one in charge, so I have to do it. Well, I don't like it, but I don't want the lightning bolt, so I'm going to have to do it. Well, I don't like it, so, but, but you know, whatever. He's, he, he's the boss. Living in this type of subjugation sees God's commandments as a burden to be borne. But that's not what living in the love of God is. And that's what this says here. This is the love of God. It doesn't say this is the obedience of God. It doesn't say this is the subjugation to God. It says this is the love of God. The love of God is to keep God's commandments and to experience in your life the reality that those commandments are not grievous. That word grievous there means heavy, or burdensome to see, as it were, in Christ's words that he told us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Those are the words used to describe a not heavy, a not burdensome, a not grievous burden. Pastor, Are you telling me that not only do I have to obey God, but you mean I have to like it too? No, I'm not saying that, nor is that what the Bible is saying. I'm not saying that you have to obey God and you have to like it too. What the Bible is saying is that when you understand God's love and his commandments and you're living in them, you will like it too. Not that you have to. Not that you have to conjure up in yourself some sort of false reality whereby you, uh, you, you, have, so, you, you have some sort of uh, wires twisted in your head where when you feel pain, it makes you giggle. That's not what we're talking about here. What the Bible is saying is that when you understand the love of God and you're living in that love, you are keeping his commandments because you love them, because you want to. We spent the first half of this message articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that gospel, we, re- we recognize that God loved you so much that he sent his beloved, only begotten son to die a cruel and painful death for no other reason than that you might be redeemed from your sins and receive eternal life, an eternal life that you not only could not earn, but you can in no way Deserve. In light of that, let me ask you this. Do you truly believe that a God who extended that kind of love to you, the kind of love whereby he sacrificed the most precious thing to him, his only begotten son, that you might live through him, would do that specifically so that he could take those who received it and make them miserable for the rest of their lives? Is that really what pleases our God? Does that sound like God? Does that sound like love? Is that what you would do with your child? That you would sacrifice everything to make sure that they are strong and healthy and you've raised them to adulthood? Specifically hoping that then they would start to to submit themselves to you and, and, and in doing so you would... Go out of your way to make them miserable for the rest of their lives. Tell them, I raised you. I took care of you. You owe me a debt. Now you can't do anything fun. Now you can't do anything you enjoy. Now you can't have any pleasures for the rest of your life. This is what I demand for the sacrifice I gave to you. That's not not what any parent thinks. This is fundamentally inconsistent. A parent pours himself into caring for and raising a child so that that, with the vision that those children will grow up into adults and that they will be happy and healthy so that they will find their own joys and make their own successes. There is nothing a parent loves more than to see their children be happy and successful. That's why. That that is the consolation of all of the sacrifice that a parent put into these children when they were young. A parent would sacrifice for their child with the hope that their child would live the rest of their life in joy. And any child who had the insight to see the love that their parents have for them would naturally interpret then their parents' subsequent requests that as a parent has raised their children in love and in sacrifice when a parent gives further advice. It would be natural then for that child to say, my parents really love me and to assume that their parents' advice is right in that same vein of love. Now we've said before in this series, and I'll say it again, God has already proved how much he loves you. If you're one who, under the sound of my voice today, is struggling with the idea that God loves you, how can God love me when I'm such a sinner? How can God love me when I've been so selfish? How can God love me when I'm so flawed? It's an understandable question, emotionally speaking. It's an understandable question From the, and a frustration from the, from a human perspective, from the perspective of the fact that we are indeed all sinners, and we are all as an unclean thing, and indeed all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so it's an understandable question from a purely human standpoint, but it is an absolutely incoherent question from a divine standpoint. That I would sit in the darkness of my own confusion and frustration and say, God can't possibly love me because of the things I have done when God has already sent his son Jesus to pay for those things. He's proven his love already. There's nothing more he can do to prove his love for you. He has done everything. The the hymn writer said, what more can he say than to you he has said? What more can God do to show you how much he loves you than what he has done in sending his son to die on the cross for you? There's no question he loves you. There's no question he loves you. There's no reason then to assume that when you become a son of God, God now has your worst in mind. (laughs) There's every reason to believe that God has intended our best. He intends it through the death of his son. He intends it in how he has commanded us to live. He has not given us the commandments he's given to us to make us miserable. He's given us the commandments he's given to us to make us successful for our best good. Which means the nature of God's commands in my life are conditioned upon my perspective. Can you trust, Christian, that what God is asking of you is not for, just for himself, just for kicks and giggles. He's asking it of you for your best good. Can you trust That anything that God asks you to yield in this life is being asked to be yielded because there's something better. Because that thing is not good for you. So that while yielding it may not necessarily be carnally fun, carnally enjoyable, it might work against my sensibilities of self, But it's absolutely in your personal best interest unto greater joy, greater peace, greater contentment in the latter end. Yes, my children don't enjoy it when I make them eat all of their vegetables at dinner. But can they trust their father that it's for their best good? And so find in that thing, which maybe is not the most enjoyable thing they've done in their lives, but can they interpret in it their father's best intentions toward them, and so recognize the goodness in it and thus embrace it with joy. And the heart of God for us is well summed up in the words that God wrote to Israel through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God said, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Christian, the thoughts of God toward you are thoughts of peace, not of evil. They're thoughts of good, not of of wrong. God directs us toward an expected end of good, not of bad. And as we've already well established, you don't have to simply take God's word on that point. Jesus Christ on the cross is proof positive of that point. God could not, do, could not even possibly do more to show you his good intentions toward you. And this leads us to the final piece of the First John puzzle, what I'll call the keystone of the fullness of joy. In architecture, the keystone was a wedge-shaped stone at the top of an arch. It was placed in last, and it functioned to lock all of the other stones in place. As long as that keystone was in good shape and was put there properly, the arch, all of the other stones in the arch would effectively be locked solid. If the the keystone fails, the arch would fail. And in 1 John 5, verse 4, we have what I'll call the keystone of our relationship with God, whereby we keep God's commandments and thereby love the brethren and not only keep his commandments, but his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not grievous. Verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. A little more review for those of you that were in our, our time together this morning. When at once I live in God's commandments, I find the power to overcome the world. Defined in 1 John 2, verse 16 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In that we're still in 1 John, there's absolutely no reason to think that that's not the definition that John is using for the world. It's the same epistle. But where do I find the power to keep God's commandments? Where is the victory that overcomes the world? It's faith. Faith is the keystone Christian. It's that final piece that connects all of those building blocks of the Christian experience. They're all held together, locked into place by faith. Now, we spent much time in our Hebrew series just before 1 John contemplating the definition of faith. And we came to this simple definition. Faith is when what I know becomes what I believe and so affects What I do. And what is the faith of which John speaks here? The faith that overcomes the world. Well, certainly, this isn't faith unto salvation. That was covered in verse 1. Faith unto salvation is an important first step, the first step of faith that initiates me into the family of God and thus gives me access to the power of God by which I can overcome the world. But all throughout 1 John, we've been talking about something else. What we've been talking about is the means by which to live in the Christian life unto fullness of joy. Fullness of joy is a divine product, and it's derived as I overcome the world. And I overcome the world as I keep God's commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. And God's commandments are not grievous when I allow what I know about the love of God, everything that we've just said about the love of God, everything that we've just said about what Jesus did on the cross for us, when I allow what I know about those things, about the love of God and about His good intentions toward me, to fundamentally shape what I believe about God which fundamentally shapes what I understand about his commandments toward me, compelling me to invest fully in the determination that if God has called me to do something, he has only done so because it's absolutely what is best for me and will redound in my heart unto my best good. And then I have joy. My heart is at this point fully invested in keeping God. Commandments, not because I have to, but because I want to, because I long to, because I yearn to, because that is when I am in right fellowship with God. That is when I am keeping his commandments. That is when I am in that place where I'm living in the fullness of what Christ has done for me. And once you are in that place in your Christian walk when you are keeping God's commandments because you want to, because you love God so much and so deeply trust God's intentions toward you that you are fully invested in them, Christian, that's a day that you have overcome the world. Not just a day when you fought Not just a day where you've held on by your fingertips for dear life. That's a day when the world has no power over you. Because your love rests not upon the world, but upon God. And every day where you live in this place of love is a day where you will gladly keep the commandments of God, though they aren't always necessarily enjoyable. Every day where you live in this place of love is a day where you will gladly love the brethren, though that isn't always easy. And every day that you live in this place of love for God so that you keep his commandments and thus love the brethren, and these commandments are not grievous, you are there because your faith has taught you of the love and good intentions of your God toward you. That is a day when you have overcome the world. That's a day where you're walking in the Spirit. That's a day where you're abiding in Christ. And you'll know you're there because you're experience something in that time, in that moment, in that place, which any love for the world cannot give, something which only fellowship with the Father can give, something I talked about 24 sermons ago in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. John wrote, and these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy. It is not a mystery how to have fullness of joy. In fact, we've had the key, not just since the beginning of our study in 1 John, we've had the key not just since Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, but the scriptures have truly given us this key going all the way back to David in Psalm 16, where he wrote in verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence, David said, is fullness of joy. Who is it that resides continually in the presence of the Lord? He who walks in fellowship, walks in the Spirit, abides in Christ. Those words, walk in the Spirit, abide in Christ, the presence of the Lord. And how are we there? By walking in the light, by keeping God's commandments, by loving the brethren, and gladly so. Because your faith has convinced you that it is far better to live as a doorkeeper in the house of your God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 84, 10 and 11. That the love of God shed abroad in your hearts through the finished work of Christ on the cross proves not only God's mercy for you, but God's love toward you and that God's every intention toward you is an intention for good. And that's where joy is found. Now, this isn't the final message in 1 John. We have a few more things to cover here. But as far as the promise of fullness of joy is concerned, that promise that was given in 1 John 1, verse 4, these things are written... For, uh, that, that we might have that fullness of joy. As far as that is concerned, we've come full circle. We have everything that we need now to live in determined faith, necessary to overcome the world, and to know this joy. The only question now is, Christian, how are you doing? Have you been operating under a misunderstanding of God's love for you? of God's intentions toward you. Have you been operating under a misconception of the joy that is found in obedience, seeing obedience as a burden, a heavy burden that must be borne rather than as this easy yoke and this light burden that Jesus promised and that first John calls us unto? Have you been operating on a fundamental misconception of the goodness of God's commands? You're a believer. That's good. It's essential step number one. Nothing else in the book can happen if you're not a believer first. But don't let that be enough, Christian. Don't let it be enough just to live in the Spirit. As Galatians 5 says, we'll talk more about that next Sunday. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Trust God's intentions toward you, Christian. And in doing so, determine that everything that God has asked of you from this book, regardless of how much your heart tells you it's going to make you miserable, regardless of how much the world tells you that you're missing out, regardless of the flowery promises that the devil will give you uh, related to your portion in this life, trust that there is no better way for this life or the life to come than to invest in the commandments of God for you and toward one another. And while this faith will not necessarily bring you to a place of happiness, wealth, and health in the things of this life, it will bring you the one thing for which the spirit aches that the world has absolutely no capacity to reproduce or counterfeit. It will bring you joy.